This is the Florida Roundup. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for being along with us. Let's start by taking a random scroll through social media. If your eyes start shaking suddenly, throw your phone as far as possible. Terrifying facts. This is TikTok, which has resisted the label social media. Instead, it wants to be thought of as an entertainment platform. Fortnite changed snipers to something a lot of people are struggling with. Them. Video after video after video. Some highly produced, others more low tech. My mother forced me to play hide and seek every night at nine. Tonight, it wasn't a game. TikTok users spend almost an hour a day on average scrolling and scrolling and scrolling through videos. And each time users open the app, they spend almost seven minutes looking through posts. TikTok is one of the most popular platforms for teenagers. Almost two-thirds of 13 to 17-year-olds used TikTok in a survey from Pew Research Center last year. Woo, that'll do it. <laughs> Over half of teens say they use Snapchat and Instagram as well. And one in five teens say they are on TikTok or YouTube, quote, almost constantly. Many kids in Florida would not be able to sign up for a social media account under legislation gathering bipartisan support among state lawmakers. How young is too young to be on social media? Email us radio at thefloridaroundup.org or call 305-995-1800. I got my first phone in middle school, and I got Snapchat immediately. Laura Mello is from Orlando. She's 20 years old now. It definitely affects me. Um, sometimes I find myself in a, like, it's like a mind trap. You're just scrolling, and it's, it's a very numbing feeling. And you're just scrolling, and you don't realize that hours have passed by. So it's really damaging to the individual's, like, mental health. The Florida Senate Judiciary Committee approved a proposal this week that would prevent minors under the age of 16 from having social media accounts. Now, this bill is similar to the House bill that recently passed. Governor Ron DeSantis has raised legal questions about the breadth of the measure. Some tech industry companies also have contended the bill would violate First Amendment rights. Florida Senate President Republican Kathleen Pasadomo is a supporter, though. Whenever someone doesn't like a bill, they say, oh, it's unconstitutional. You know, I'm not the courts. I don't have the opportunity to make that decision. Similar bills in other states have faced legal pushback, but Republican Senator Aaron Grawl thinks she's taking a narrow approach by targeting features that apps like Snapchat, TikTok, and Instagram use to appeal to children. Features she calls, quote, addictive, harmful, or deceptive. There are some things that are similar. Um, this legislation, we've also attempted to... Um, learn from the mistakes of those that go before you and see what it is that has caused a court to strike down a decision, a bill or language like this in other states. The bill has found bipartisan support. House Minority Leader Democrat Frentis Driscoll voted for it, even though she has some concerns about how it would be enforced if it becomes law. We never really got answers about which platforms uh, were being targeted. We never really got clear answers about how the bill would be enforceable. The bills would prevent minors under the age of 16 from creating accounts. They would require social media platforms to terminate existing accounts that are reasonably known by the platforms to be held by minors younger than 16 and would allow parents to request that minors' accounts be terminated. Meta that's the parent company of platforms like Facebook and Instagram, and other tech industry groups have criticized the proposal and warned about a court challenge. 
So how young is too young in Florida to have a TikTok account or swipe through Instagram? Does there need to be more regulation of social media? And what's your social media diet like? How about your kids or your grandkids? Call now, 305-995-1800, 305-995-1800, or email us, radio, at thefloridaroundup.org. Tyler Saroy is the sponsor of the legislation in the Florida House. He's a Republican representing parts of Rivard County. Representative, thanks for your time today and for joining our conversation. Why do you think your bill is not unconstitutional? Why do you think it'll pass muster? First of all, we're not focused on content. You know, I think that that's a very important distinction to make. This bill is not about the content that is on these platforms. This bill is on addictive features. Um, The things that are intentionally designed uh, to produce basically a dopamine hit in our kids. One of my colleagues referred to it as a digital fentanyl. So the bill is not about content. It's about features and uh, features that we now understand are intentionally designed to capture our kids' attention. Let's talk about some of those features because the bill defines a social media platform as one that, quote, utilizes addictive, harmful, or deceptive design features. So is the bill saying that those design features are legal? So what the bill is is defining is the the features that are problematic, the features that are addictive in nature. Um, Auto-scroll, for example, autoplay, the concept of of push notifications. You know, there are things that are are in, in, in being in designed and intentionally deployed to modify the way that our kids behave, uh, to take advantage of of child development and capturing their and holding their attention. So our bill, you know, with our Senate colleagues is still a work in progress. I think we're going to drill down the language even further. But our our goal here is to focus on the addictive uh, nature of these features. Why not look to outlaw those features or somehow regulate those features themselves as opposed to the age restriction strategy that you've taken? Well, you know, I think that we have to recognize that social media is a is a tool that exists and it is very prevalent in our society. Um, this legislation is not about uh, whether social media is good or bad. But what we are working to do is to protect our youth from platforms that we now understand are harmful. We're seeing soaring suicide rates. We're seeing increased incidents of self-harm. Hospital admissions for uh, self-harm are increasing. And we understand, based on testimony that we received here in Tallahassee, that on our present course, it's going to be normal for American girls to suffer from depression. You know, so that is something that I find alarming, and it doesn't have to be that way. And all of the data that we have points to social media as being a main contributor. So what we want to do is make sure that our minors are protected. And there's precedent for that in, in our law. Uh, when you look at things like alcohol and tobacco sales, casino gaming, getting a tattoo, you know, I'm not here to say that any of those things are good or bad. But what we are saying is there are some things that are just not developmentally appropriate for children. Some of those features you've identified in the legislation, and you just mentioned here, autoplay features, uh, in infinite scroll, for instance, 
uh, push notifications, some of those you can opt out of as a user. Why isn't that opting out enough? Well, because we, we've heard from parents and we've heard from, you know, young people that we've talked to, um, these, these platforms uh, and these controls are very complicated to keep up with. You know, if you're a parent that is not tech savvy, you know, you may have seven or eight different social media platforms that you're trying to keep up with a variety of, of different settings related to privacy and to, uh, to access. So I think that what we're doing here is recognizing that the magnitude of this problem and the harm that these platforms are doing to our youth is basically beyond, you know, a lot of parents' ability, a lot of families' ability to be able to step in and handle it. So I, I think that there's a role for government to play here in terms of, of creating some guardrails for safety. One of those guardrails under your legislation, Representative, would require those social media apps to disclose uh, to users if it uses what the bill calls addictive design or deceptive patterns. Is that like a warning on a pack of cigarettes? I think so. And I, I think that a lot of parallels can be made to uh, the history of, of public policy as it relates to big tobacco. Um, and I think that that's a, a, a good uh, informative lens to look at this issue through. You know, these social media platforms know what they are doing is wrong. They know the impact that is having on our children. Do you think social media today represents the public health dangers of tobacco a generation ago? Well, I think when you see increasing suicide rates in our children, uh, increasing rates of self-harm, when psychologists are telling us that, that depression is becoming a normal thing among American women, when you see increased rates of bipolar disorder and eating disorder and self-esteem and bondage issues, and all of that data points back to social media as being a, a contributor to those problems, uh, yes. I do believe that it is a is a significant issue for us to address, uh, particularly for the health of our kids. How do you envision enforcement of your legislation if it becomes law? So the bill does two things. First, it empowers the Florida Attorney General uh, to pursue unfair and deceptive trade practices uh, against companies that are violating the law. Um, and then the other thing the bill provides for is for parents to bring a cause of action to a lawsuit against a social media company that has unlawfully enrolled a minor child, um, and those are the two those are the two things that we have in place for enforcement. Now, I would add that uh, I'm a believer in the free market, and I think if this bill establishes what we find in Florida to be an acceptable framework for the safety of our children, I think that these companies have the ability to respond. The market will respond, and they can certainly offer platforms that do not deploy addictive features, that do not take advantage of our of our children in their years of development. Uh, and I'm optimistic that the market can respond in that fashion if the platforms choose to do so. Representative, let me ask you about the marketplace for social media, because in the way back machine in the 1990s, when the internet was just getting speed and social media hadn't been thought of yet, the federal government passed a law that essentially has allowed internet platforms to not be legally responsible for messages that users post. Do you think that needs to be revisited? I do. This bill in Florida, I believe, is the tip of the spear in terms of that reappraisal. 
Isn't, though, this a federal issue, given that these communications are happening across state lines? Well, I, I just don't have a high degree of confidence that Congress is going to act. You know, this is a urgent situation. I would love to see Congress get involved. You know, from that congressional hearing, the social media companies we had the other day, it sounds like their committee has proposed some really good legislation. It's unfortunate that it hasn't moved in Congress, but you're seeing states now starting to act in this space. And Florida, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to put our law out there for people to see what we can do to keep our children safe. Representative Tyler Soroy from Brevard County, a Republican. Representative Soroy, thank you for spending your time with us. Thank you for having me. Paul sent us this email, radio at thefloridaroundup.org is that address. Paul wrote, uh, I call social media saccharine socialization. Like real saccharine, Paul writes, social media is at best a partial replacement for the real thing. The amount of learning we can glean from our social, uh, from our digital socialization that is applicable to our real life analog lives is notably limited. Because of this, Paul says uh, social media should be relegated as a tool that is inferior to face-to-face real-world interactions. Well, let's talk about more of social media. Aaron McKay is along with us. Aaron, I'll ask you to unmute yourself there as you're joining us via Zoom from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. It's a digital rights organization. Aaron, thanks for your time and welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you, Tom. Is the foundation opposed to this kind of measure that Florida lawmakers are considering? Yes, we're, we're opposed because fundamentally what this does is it deprives um, children of access to um, probably the most diverse uh, platform for users to engage in speech and to learn about the world around us, as well as um, it has a consequence of requiring uh, verification of all adults um, their age and their identifying information to access social media. So it affects not just children, but all adults. Um, and uh, the, the Supreme Court and federal courts across the country have routinely held that this type of scheme that requires everyone to pass through sort of an age verification gate is unconstitutional because you can't put those types of restrictions on adults and children's um, ability to access the internet. Is there a way to create technology that requires age verification for uh, folks that are younger than 16 years old? There's no way to do that that I'm aware of in terms of if you're trying to segment a portion of the population based on their age, everyone has to pass through that gate. So um, there's no technology I'm aware of that can sort of somehow uh, magically divine the age of internet users who are minors, um, but then not have to um, force adults to to make those similar sort of verification and turnover uh, personal information. The first uh, 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 piece that you mentioned there, uh, opposition, was depriving access of uh, mm-hmm. these young students to social media. Representative Soroy, you just heard him there, thinks that the bill can withstand at least the First Amendment challenges because it's not about content. It's about yeah. uh, what's your response there, Aaron? Well, that's like saying a bill that bans access to movie theaters for anyone under 16 or bans access to bookstores for anyone under 16 is not about the content of the movies or the Mm -hmm. books. Um, This is fundamentally about the content and those sort of um, facial uh, sort of designs of of a law. uh, Courts will easily see through see past that. And I think, you know, what's what's curious about this is the purported design features that they're trying to focus on um, evolving, involving endless scroll or the interactive nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bill curiously exempts um, 
streaming media like Netflix mm -hmm. and Disney Plus, um, mm -hmm. which can unendingly sort of present media to children. It also exempts um, online gaming platforms and systems, which have various notifications and interactive yeah. natures designed to keep people on the platform. So um, I, I don't, it's not to say that these concerns about individuals being harmed online are unfounded. It's hard to square the desire to to protect those children from harm with some of the carve outs in this bill. What is the foundation of, on positions like autoplay and infinite scroll? Are they seen as harmful and deceptive as the legislation describes them here in Florida? I think there there can be unique um, interfaces that that potentially can be uh, harmful, sort of under a consumer protection theory. But once you start talking about just like the the basic design and features that we all use for a variety of purpose, um, those generally aren't sort of subject to that sort of thinking and, and legal theory, because ultimately those design it features... It doesn't mean that they're not harmful, though, just because, you know, I mean, for, for decades, we didn't think cigarettes were harmful. Sure. But what you're talking about is the delivery of of content, of speech. And so it's akin to saying that the newspaper's design, its determination about what goes on the front page, how big the the, the newspaper's, you know, picture on A1 is, mm. is a harmful design picture because the, the content itself is harmful. Um, and so, or distressing or, or to, to children. And so to, it's, it's sort of saying, you know, uh, the, the representative talked about like cigarettes and, 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 and drinking alcohol and, and access to drugs. Um, all of that is con, Duct, right? All of that is harmful conduct. And ultimately what this bill is targeting is content and it's users content, including children's content. We are talking about social media legislation in Florida uh, with uh, Adam uh, McKay. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly, Adam? Uh, I'm sorry, Aaron? It's Aaron, Aaron? Aaron Mackey. No <laughs> Mackey. problem. I, I got them both wrong on that instance. Aaron Mackey is with us, uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation, a digital rights organization. Uh, you can join our conversation. We've got some phone calls lined up here, Aaron. 305-995-1800 is that phone number. 305-995-1800. You can also send us an email, radio at the Florida Roundup dot org radio at the florida roundup dot org aaron you want to stick around uh, for some phone calls uh, after we take a quick break here coming up in a few moments absolutely yeah great because we want to hear from you uh, after all this kind of program is the original social media before tiktok before an infinite scroll uh, before autoplay there was live conversation on your radio and we're proud to do it here in florida public radio 305-995-1800 or radio at the florida roundup dot org we'll talk more about this social media legislation that is making its way now through the florida senate it was passed out of the florida house last week governor ron DeSantis has raised some concern about what he calls the breadth of this legislation but it has been finding some bipartisan support amongst florida lawmakers 305-995-1800 305-995-1800 going to get to as many as your phone calls coming up in just a moment you are listening to the florida roundup from your florida public radio station This is the Florida Roundup. I'm Tom Hudson. Next week on our program, a new law took effect a year ago that requires many public unions here in the Sunshine State to have at least 60% of its members pay dues. And if not, the union runs the risk of losing its bargaining rights. A new investigation by our partner station WLRN in Miami finds that tens of thousands of Florida union workers have lost their collective bargaining rights and more will. Are you in a public union like a teacher's union, working at a 911 call center, maybe doing administrative work for a local government? 
Do you pay union dues? And what do you know about your collective bargaining status under this new law? You can email us now, radio at thefloridaroundup.org. Radio at thefloridaroundup.org, and we may share your story next week. Now, let's get back to social media and Florida children. New legislation would ban social media platforms from allowing kids under 16 years old to sign up for an account. Mael Perkins is 19 years old and from Orlando. Oh, my parents were kind of strict. So uh, I didn't get Instagram until I was 14, but then I got it taken away. And then I was allowed to have it again at 16. Snapchat I wasn't allowed to have until I was a freshman in high school. They didn't want me, like, comparing myself to other people online. Celissa Bly is from Navarre and is 18 now. She first signed up for Snapchat when she was 12 years old and admits that was probably too young. They should be more adamant about the age requirement thing. Like, I know a lot of apps already have that, but it's really just you press a button saying, yes, I am this age, which can be bypassed by anybody. Um, so I think there should probably be something more, I don't want to say something more aggressive, but something to prevent children to be able, 12-year-olds like I was, to be able to get apps like that. Ahmad Lamidi is from Nigeria. He's a student at the University of South Florida in Tampa. He thinks 16 to have a social media account is pretty old. I think I was 13 when I first started using social media, and currently I'm 19. I feel like at least 10 years old. Like I feel like that's a good minimum to set for age requirements. That's what I would say. Uh, David sent us this email writing, if the Florida legislature wants to protect the youth, how about some common sense gun regulations? 305-995-1800. Aaron Mackey is still with us with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a digital rights organization. Aaron, should there be a minimum age for social media platforms in the United States? Well, I think they're, they're the, the users and platforms and uh, parents should be deciding, you know, when uh, when is appropriate for someone to join a particular social media platform. And we already have um, federal laws like the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act that say if you're going to market your um, product to uh, a child under the age of 13, you have to get uh, affirmative consent before you collect information about them. So we, we already sort of have a guideline around um, you know, young children, preteens. Um, and so I think we we sort of already have that that federal standard. Um, and so then the question becomes, you know, do we need to do something more um, for like teens themselves mm-hmm. before they hit 18? Yeah. Let's hear from uh, some Floridians listening in. Heather, we're going to uh, uh, ask Heather from uh, West Palm Beach to join the conversation. Heather, you are on the radio. Go ahead. Hi there. I'm a family therapist. I work with adolescents and parents here in uh, South Florida, and I constantly hear about the, uh, you know, the implications of the social media apps. And to the Aaron's point, it is a conduct issue, not not just a content content issue, because what we see is the addictive nature of these um, apps. We see that parents don't feel like they have any sort of control or any sort of ability to uh, regulate. There's all sort of deceptive practices where, you know, the, the kids can just be on and it is a conduct that happens, that sort of, that constant scrolling and all of that. And then we see those rates of depression and suicide. I see the implications on a daily basis and parents don't have the tools to 
uh, it's just so overwhelming and it's out of our hands. And I'm mm. someone who does not support Ron DeSantis and all of the Republican legislation happening in Florida. But I do believe that this is so important for the mental health, especially since post-COVID, the mental health of our adolescents and our, and our young children and teenagers. Um, parents need more tools. If the parents Heather? wanted to bypass it, they, they could, and they yeah. could help their kids get on that. Heather, I appreciate you lending your voice to this conversation. Aaron, what do you, what do you, what do you make of uh, uh, Heather, the therapist's uh, perspective there from West Palm Beach? Yeah, I, I think, thanks, Heather. I, I agree that, um, you know, people have been harmed and that there are problems with um, what children have. The question is, what do we, what, what can a government do about it? And unfortunately, the the Florida effort that's on the table is not going to to help, and it's also not going to be enforced because it will be struck down as violating the First Amendment. I think what we need to do is actually think about how do we actually help children? Can we? Can we provide, can the state of Florida provide more resources to, to engage with social media education for both adults and children that helps demystify some of these settings and these problems? Can we provide more public resources for their mental health, whether that's um, basic Would the industry be or, interested in contributing to that effort, Aaron? I, I'm not a part of the industry, right? We don't, we're not the companies. We're, Understood. We're, um, but but I'm sure I'm sure if you ask them, um, they they probably would. But I think all of those efforts are are essential. And and just you know I I do agree that Heather that there are legitimate concerns here and people uh, children are being harmed. The question is is this going to actually help them and will it actually be enforced? Let's go to uh, Fort Pierce where Randy has been very patient in listening in. Randy, you are on the radio. Go ahead. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I agree with Aaron. This is a First Amendment violation court case in the making. Uh, there, there's other things that can be done. For instance, uh, when someone is on one of those apps, uh, it could force them after, say, an hour to log out and then log mm-hmm. back in. Mm-hmm. There can be warning screens. A third-party app developer, for instance, could uh, pair up with one of these applications, and a little pop-up comes up and says, hey, you've been on this for over you know, an hour. Mm-hmm. Don't you think you could be doing something else? You know, and that's something that if that app does exist or could exist, that's something that parents, you know, Florida is all about parental rights, apparently, lately. And I think that parents need to know what these apps are, delete them off their kid's phone if they see them, if they don't want them on those apps. Mm. Uh, Just anything except making a law that I know is going to get struck down like Aaron is talking about. It's just a court case in the making. David, some interesting perspective there from West Palm Beach. Thank you. Uh, I'm sorry, Randy, thank you for uh, uh, calling from Fort Pierce there. Uh, Aaron, some interesting um, ideas from Mm -hmm. Randy, some of which are, you know, one can deploy right now. Now, Maybe not through the, the social media apps, but I know for our devices, for instance, we can set up certain you know, self-regulation that, hey, you know, watch your screen time and those kinds of things. Yeah, so those are great tools. And then I think in terms of like how you could go further is you could have support for federal laws that allow for interoperability, that allow for, say, a third-party software service to basically take over someone's Facebook or Instagram and be used by parents to sort of monitor and filter that device in the ways that that Randy suggested. And so um, there's an example of a law that could be passed by Congress that wouldn't offend the First Amendment issues that we've been discussing and would empower parents to make choices more directly instead of the state setting this sort of default. Aaron, let me understand that a little bit more. So this idea would have uh, some other company other than, say, uh, Facebook 
come in and offer a parent kind of a gateway technology that their child's Instagram account would connect through and allow the parent to be the gatekeeper? Yeah, or or to set some 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 rules on this, and so we saw this right in the in the '90s when when we had just just sort of the internet and we didn't have um, sort of the social media apps, but there were a lot of um, companies that sold internet filtering tools right. to parents, right? right? Yeah. And so this would be the same thing, except it would be be allowed to sort of interact more directly and interoperate yeah. with uh, a social media service. Yeah. Uh, Randy's idea about you know parents also just deleting the app from their uh, children's phones. Um, uh, Randy, I don't know how old you are, but maybe you don't have a middle schooler or a high schooler these days, but the social pressure to be on social media is intense for teenagers, no doubt. Uh, another phone call here. David has been listening in in West Palm Beach. David, go ahead. You are on the radio. Uh, that's me. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Oh, wonderful. Um, in any case, uh, um, first of all, these apps are not just addictive to children. We have to realize they are addictive to us as adults as well as children. Um, I, I assume most of the people that are listening now um, are probably on a screen at this moment or on a screen most of the day. Number two is I don't think that this is really a government issue, mainly because there are laws against the drug, using drugs, and children can't smoke cigarettes, etc., etc. How effective are those laws? Uh, um, my belief is that this is mostly a, a parental issue that, uh, as difficult as it may be, it's for parents to, to somehow limit and regulate as best they can yeah. the use of social media. Yeah. Uh, it's very difficult, yes, for uh, the government to, to make regulations uh, that will limit the amount of time that children spend or adults spend on social media. Yeah. David, thanks for sharing your thoughts there from West Palm Beach. Uh, Anne sent us this email. Uh, Anne asks, uh, can you please tell me how age verification works, given that someone could easily lie about their uh, birth date? Aaron, how about that? Um, yeah. We heard that from a number of people uh, as we went out and spoke about their social media usage. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's sort of the, the lowest level of, of age verification. That's like age attestation mm -hmm. where like, you know, when you sign up for Facebook right now, it just asks you to like enter into a box what your age is. Yeah. But the real age verification that's required by this law requires people to turn over personal identifying information that they can use to verify. So things like government issued identification um, and not in this legislation, but in other proposals we've seen, we've seen um, basically like you know, biometric information, basically like looking at your face and trying to determine your age based on your your face, which has technical issues, but but ultimately requires the same sort of thing, which is the disclosure of personal information um, that is used to verify. But we have that, that kind of verification if you're going to try to buy a bottle of rum, for instance, uh, the clerk can ask you for a government issued ID. Yeah. So, so again, that's to engage in some conduct, which the state has a lot of police power to, to regulate. Um, and, and that has, you know, harm as a result of, of conduct. Mm. Um, when you have this age gate, what you're doing is you're requiring everybody to turn over ID to enter the bookstore. So the adults have to prove that who they are just to enter the bookstore yeah. or the movie theater or just to get on social media. I want to squeeze in one more caller. Susan has been patient in Jacksonville. Go ahead, Susan. You are on the radio. Yes, I wanted to echo what other people said about the um, about banning social media use. Be 
because it's like it seems like what the legislators leg, legislators are doing about other things, banning things rather than teaching kids how to use them properly. So I'm definitely vehemently opposed to this, and I'm also worried about giving my government ID to a social media company, even though supposedly they have to destroy it right away. Yeah, you walk in and buy alcohol, but they don't make a photocopy of it like yeah. they would in. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, I hope they don't pass this thing. It's a horrible bill. I, I think some some uh, protections are needed, like um, log logarithms that promote bad behavior or body shaming. We should do something about that. Hmm. But completely banning um, people from using social media seems like a terrible idea, just like banning books is a terrible idea. Susan, I appreciate you lending your voice to the conversation here on The Roundup. Great to hear from you. Thanks. Uh, we're going to leave it there. Aaron Mackey is with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Aaron, you've been very gracious with your time. Uh, appreciate the conversation and the point of view. Thanks, Tom. You too. Take care. You are listening to the Florida Roundup from your Florida Public Radio station. This week, both of Florida's U.S. senators voted against a negotiated immigration reform bill focused on the southern border. The bill failed to get enough support to move forward on Capitol Hill. And it comes as immigration and border security has become one of the top issues for voters, including Floridians. Despite dropping out of the presidential race, Governor DeSantis continues to insert himself and Floridians in the border issue. Encounters with migrants at the southern border hit a new record in December, according to data from U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Earlier this month, the governor announced he was making members of the Florida State Guard available to Texas, which is in a dispute with the federal government over undocumented immigrants entering the country. Texas Governor Greg Abbott continues to battle the Biden administration even after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled federal agents can remove razor wire that Texas put at the border. Here's Governor DeSantis last week. If Texas is helping to erect barriers, putting up razor wire, doing other things to keep illegal aliens out, I want to be helpful with them doing that. I don't want to be part of the federal government trying to tear down these barriers and let more people in illegally. Florida Guard Director Mark Thiem says the surge in immigration in Texas has ramifications for Florida. The dangers of the border crisis do not stop at state lines and are far too great for any one state to ignore or to overcome. Julian Aguilar is with us now. He is a reporter with the Texas Newsroom based in El Paso. Julian, welcome to our program, and thanks for being along with us. This all centers around Operation Lone Star. It's the name of the effort by the state of Texas along the border with Mexico. What's the intended goal of that program? Sure, and thank you for having me on. So Operation Lone Star was um, initiated by Governor Greg Abbott um in march of 2021 shortly after president biden took office so we're about three um or about a month out from the three-year anniversary of that and he was very specific when he launched it and said look this is to counter the biden administration's quote unquote um you know open border policies mm -hmm. uh, so it's sent uh, thousands of texas national guard and thousands of texas dps troopers to the border mainly concentrated there in the in the area uh, near eagle pass in maverick county down to brownsville um although there are there is a, you know quite a quite a significant presence when there is a surge out here in, in west texas y'all got to remember that the texas mexico border is 1,754 yeah, yeah. miles <laughs> it's a good long um, line yeah exactly so uh and you know this these these folks i mean we're, we're looking at a price tag now of more than 10 billion dollars um in about three years the legislature that just gaveled out late last year appropriated another 5.1 billion dollars over the next two years 
for border security, most of which will go to Operation Lone Star. So that's state money there in the state of Texas. Florida is among the few states that have deployed members of uh, law enforcement, including the State Guard announced last week. What kinds of duties do those out-of-state law enforcement officers have in Texas? Sure. So um, the, the one of the bills the governor signed this last legislative session was an interstate compact that would, you know, not usurp federal authority, but allow states uh, to sort of share information gathering and intelligence to secure the border. Um, you know, I reached out to the governor's office for clarity. I hadn't heard back on that, but I'm assuming that they will follow Texas's lead. Um, you know, I listened to y'all's governor's press conference where, you know, he said, they're going to go down there and they're going to help with construction of the border barriers. I mean, I'm sure everybody's been following this and yeah. seen the razor wire yep. and, and, you know, the, the old trailers uh, that are stacked up there. So it sounds like they're in a supportive role. Texas uh, National Guard and DPS, they do have arresting authority now because the governor um, has ordered these folks to to arrest migrants on state trespassing charges, you know, yeah. not immigration charges, but state trespassing charges. Do, so do these officers uh, from out of state have those same police powers? You know that's that's a, that's a very very good question. I've been I've been uh, trying to get that, some specificity. Uh, to all fairness, I only reached out to the governor's office this morning on Understood. that specific question. But um, you know, in practice, it sounds like they, they've had some folks from out of state here anyway, which has caused a lot of concern. You know, they don't know Texas, they don't know the laws, they don't know the immigrant communities. So Texas is definitely taking the lead on this, and I think the folks coming in from out of state are in a supportive role. But it's still sort of raising some eyebrows. Julian. Um, yeah, thank yes, you for your time. We're up on the clock here. Julian Aguilar, reporter with the Texas Newsroom based in El Paso. Thanks for that important perspective and those details out of Texas, Julian. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. We've got more to come. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from your Florida Public Radio Station. This is the Florida Roundup. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for being along with us this week. Let's get you caught up on some news from around the state of Florida. There's another abortion question that went before the state Supreme Court this week. The high court needs to decide if the proposed language for a ballot question about abortion rights passes muster. If it does, it would be Amendment 4 on the ballot this fall. Now, the state does not think that the wording is clear enough, and it wants the justices to keep the question off the ballot in November. All rise. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The Supreme Court of Florida is now in session. The court heard oral arguments on Wednesday. Nathan Forrester represents the state of Florida. The language of the amendment itself is of such elasticity that an enormously wide range of meetings will attach to it and voters will not actually understand what they are voting for. Chief Justice Carlos Munoz countered that may be an impossible standard. All these things that are supposedly, you know, up in the air about this, which I agree are going to have to be worked out over time if this were to become part of the Constitution. I mean, there's no possible way that a summary could tick through all these different you know, all these different variables and possible implications and everything. Courtney Brewer represents the amendment sponsor. She argued the summary of the amendment that will appear on ballots is very clear. I don't know how an amendment could better communicate the chief, its chief purpose via a summary than uh, by putting the language of the amendment in the summary. The voters will have that language in the ballot box with them. Veronica Zaragovia is the healthcare reporter for our partner station WLRN in Miami. Veronica, this term viability, that word came up during the hearing this week. Help us understand why. It's written into Amendment 4. It's a word that doctors have said it's um, it means when a fetus can survive outside of the womb, but that might vary, and it's um, estimated to be somewhere between 23 and 24 weeks of pregnancy. 
there are um, justices who asked, would that maybe mean, uh, could it be interpreted to be nine months of pregnancy? So that's, it's a word that it doesn't have an exact number because doctors say that it might depend on the health of the mother. It might depend on the features of the fetus. It might depend on how, if a woman lives in a rural area, how, how quickly she could get to get mm-hmm. medical care. Florida voters would be asked to vote yes or no on the following. No law shall prohibit, penalize, delay, or restrict abortion before viability or when necessary to protect the patient's health as determined by the patient's health care provider. So that word um, certainly came up a lot in the oral arguments. So what are the rules that this amendment, this language needs to meet in order to appear on the ballot this fall? The Florida Supreme Court doesn't judge on the merits. It, that the m- justices mentioned that uh, that would be decided when politically mm-hmm. um, in elections, for instance, um, or that there would be they they mentioned there is most likely going to be a lot of legal action if this were to be approved by voters. But they need to make sure that an amendment meets the single subject rule, um, so that there aren't more than one topic being addressed. Mm-hmm. It also needs to be presented to the voters. Um, in a way that isn't misleading. It can't violate the U.S. Constitution. And also there needs to be a summary that is accurate that will be available for voters to read before they make their decision. This is not the only question this court has been faced with regarding abortion. Put this ballot language question into the greater context of what has been before this court. Right. So in 2022, Governor Ron DeSantis signed a law that bans abortions after 15 weeks. And last year, he signed a law, a bill into law restricting abortions after six weeks. And so a coalition of abortion rights groups gathered last year under the name Floridians Protecting Freedom to write this amendment so that there would be abortion rights through this viability term enshrined in the Florida Constitution. They have met all the steps. We're at the point of the Supreme Court reviewing it because they've met all the steps. For instance, they had to gather just under 900,000 verified signatures from across the state. And this is that final step before it would go on the ballot this November, where the Supreme Court has to approve the wording. State lawmakers are considering more restrictions on abortion. What can you tell us about those proposals? There is currently a proposal in the Florida legislature, a House Bill 1519, that would ban abortions in Florida uh, with some exceptions for the health of the mother. And that one actually has been referred to a number of committees, but there's been no movement on it since January 13th. Mm. So it looks like that's not going to move at this point much further uh, this session. Also, the Senate president, Kathleen Pasadomo, has indicated that um, Florida isn't prepared to go that far. Another measure called Senate Bill 476, it's called civil liability for the wrongful death of an unborn child. Critics are saying that it could penalize a doctor for performing or or another medical provider for performing an abortion. That one, the last movement was February 6th, and that one has been moving forward, and it it, uh, we'll have to see, you, you know, if lawmakers continue to pass it along. In the meantime, we are still expecting a different type of decision from the Supreme Court regarding abortion, regarding that 15-week ban law. Do we have a timeline for that decision? 
It was argued in September, and every Thursday at 11 a.m., the Supreme Court typically releases its opinions. I spoke to a spokesperson for Planned Parenthood, and they've said they're just, all they can do is log on, you know, every Thursday Mm. and and check for any decisions. So there's no no sense of how soon. But I will say the other one quickly uh, will be decided by April 1st when it comes to the ballot language issue. Veronica Zaragovia covers healthcare for our partner station, WLRN in Miami. Veronica, thanks for sharing your reporting. My pleasure. Thank you, Tom. A couple of stories about schools now. First, an update on one school district's debate over restricting students from some books. Dozens of students, parents, and teachers spoke out against district-wide book bans at a protest held outside the Brevard County School Board Tuesday night. It was the first time the board met and voted to ban a book. Daniel Pryor reports now from our partner station, WMFE. Almost 30 books are currently being reviewed after being challenged in the district, including A Court of Thorns and Roses. Outside the meeting, students like Brevard senior Anjani Sharma voice concerns over the proposed bans. She says book bans are detrimental to student learning. I know that in books, you know, these authors highlight their own lives, but also lives of others that I would never be able to understand unless I read that. Eastern Florida State College junior Rosalina Rodriguez says she's upset many of the banned books feature LGBTQ plus characters and themes. Um, I know definitely for me, I definitely started off reading some books about those kind of things and that really helped me um, with who I am. After the hour-long protest, the students continued to speak out during public comment, but at the end of the meeting, the board still decided to remove the book by a vote of four to one. Board member Matt Susan expressed his concerns over some of the sex scenes in the book, along with the community's responses to the book bans. One week, we have a group of people that come in and yell at us that we didn't ban a book. And then the very next week, we have a bunch of people that come in and say, you banned the book. And it's just this seesaw. However, he says he looks forward to doing the important work of looking at books that have been challenged each meeting. In Orlando, I'm Danielle Pryor. Further south, Broward County is having a different kind of debate, how to respond to declining student enrollment. There are more than 50,000 empty seats in classrooms in Broward County public schools, and falling enrollment is expected to continue as families opt for homeschooling, private options, or charter schools. Broward Schools Superintendent Peter Licata says it's time for the district to make some hard decisions like closing or combining schools. We have to understand that the more money we spend on students that aren't here, the less money we spend on students that are here. In other words, we've been spending money on empty seats for a long time. So we have to make sure that we're spending wisely. Almost one out of three public schools in Broward County are less than 70% occupied. 15 schools have less than half the number of students they can accommodate. Options include closing, combining schools, selling or leasing district properties, and creating more K-8 through schools where elementary and middle school grades are combined under one roof. I'm Tom Hudson. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from your Florida Public Radio Station. Finally in the Roundup this week, there's a coming attraction for Netflix subscribers in Florida. Now, it isn't a horror story, but it is kind of a mystery. Let's tell this tax tale this way. In a world where video streaming platforms rule, the tax man cometh. It's been there, lurking for years, unseen by Florida's Netflix subscribers. But now, it's time for subscribers to pay. 
if you subscribe to Netflix using a Florida billing address, you have probably seen the notification that beginning February 15th, you will be charged an additional state services tax. Now, the tax is not new, but Netflix passing it on to subscribers is. The tax dates back to 2001 on cell phone service and satellite and cable TV subscriptions. In 2012, the tax was extended to include streaming services. Why well, I think we skipped a part. Oh? Well, which part? The part where you tell me what the hell is going on here. Like the mystery is why Netflix has not been passing along this tax to its customers. The company didn't answer that question in a statement emailed to us. The State Department of Revenue didn't provide any answers either, only saying the taxpayer information is confidential. Chances of success are 20 to 1. Never tell me the odds. So next week, Florida Netflix subscribers will see an additional 5.07% tacked on to their bill for the state portion of the communication services tax. Oh my God. But that's not the only tax that will show up. Local governments may also charge their own communications tax. And that'll do it for this episode of the Florida Roundup. It's produced by WLRN Public Media in Miami and WUSF Public Media in Tampa. The program is produced by Bridget O'Brien and Grayson Doctor. WLRN's Vice President of Radio and the program's Technical Director is Peter Mertz. Engineering help each and every week from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, and Jackson Harp. Richard Ives answers our phones. Our theme music is provided by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Lebos at AaronLebos.com. If you missed any of today's program, you want to download or listen to past episodes, we got you covered. Go to WLRN.org slash podcasts. Thanks for calling, emailing, listening, and supporting public media in your neighborhood. I'm Tom Hudson. Have a terrific weekend.